10 years. Um, you heard me say, you know, I, I study the Bible and I've taught the Bible and I like First Peter. But I can understand what some of the commentaries have said, you know, First Peter is a tough book. It's not, it's no book for the spring chicken, I can tell you that. Um, either there's, a lot of, there's a lot of controversy in this book that has been debated for centuries. And, um, but you know, just reading the book, there is some deep stuff in here, you know? And um, so it's been, it's been good because I've seen this book from a different angle. And, um, and I feel like it's done a, a deep work in me as an individual. Sometimes I hope what you're teaching is getting to the people, but this book has actually taught me as a person on many different things. So it's been a good learning, a good learning experience for me um, as a teacher. So I thank you guys for in, enduring some of the sessions. Um, but on a whole, First Peter is about the suffering of the church, being patient, and when we're doing what's right and we don't look like we're getting rewarded for it, and the people that are doing what's wrong seem to always be getting you know, promoted. They seem to be getting the better end of the deal. Um, as a Christian, we are to endure those things and not try to lash out, not try to start our own religious holy war. Um, you know, and... Second Peter is, you know, gets more into the judgments of God and, and things like that. But we're probably going to get where we're at. Chapter four is where we're at tonight. We'll see how we go. I'd like to get this book done tonight. If we don't, we definitely will be closing down first Peter next week. All right. So let's pick it up. Um, first Peter chapter four. And um, we're going to start at um, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for preserving the scriptures for your people. You've been so faithful, Lord. To keep the Bible alive, to keep it uh, from generation to generation, Lord. Your word says, Lord, that you will preserve your word from generation to generation. And you surely have done that. And we are a grateful people, God. And Lord, we don't take this book that we hold in our hands tonight lightly. Lord, thank you, God. What a privilege and an honor to be able to be here in freedom to study your word, God. So, Lord, bless the hearers, and Lord, engraft us, God, deeper into a place with you tonight. In Jesus Christ's name, and the saints say, Amen. Amen. All right, so, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18, verse 12, thank you. Uh-huh, all right, let's read. Beloved, think it not a strange, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, 
And when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. But on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begins at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner, sorry, and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let him that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Praise God. So Peter writes here to not think it a strange thing when a fiery trial comes upon you. You know, sometimes we can be so involved in what's happening to us, kind of so self-centered or self-consumed in what's taking place that we think we're the only one going through it or that what we're going through is a special thing that nobody else is going through. Um, and Peter is saying here, think it not a strange thing. You know, um, we as a Christian, there's a couple of verses we can turn to to back this up. The first place I want to go to um, is keep your finger there and let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. All right. I'm dealing with this idea that as a Christian, what you're going through is you're not the only one. And it's not a strange thing. You know, sometimes people say, oh, man, you wouldn't believe what I'm going through. It's so strange. I don't know why this is happening to me. Well, it's happening to everybody else, too, sister, brother. OK. And first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let's read that if you're there. Hon. Say amen if you're there. Amen. It says there has no temptation taken you. But such as is common to man. All right. In other words, there is no temptation that has come upon you that is not common to, to everybody. The thing you're going through, everybody goes through it. OK, we all go through it. We all go through stuff. You know, I find it amazing that when we do go through trial, that the devil tries to isolate us. He tries to separate us. And he tries to make us think that we're the only one going through it and nobody understands my problem. That's contrary to the word of God. All right. You know, Peter is talks about sheep a lot. He'll talk about the shepherd later in chapter five. And, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to a sheep is to get away from the flock and get out there, you know, in, in the in the rocky places all alone. 
You know, if you've ever traveled in England, you go to the to the dales there and you, and you see the, the flocks and you always see that one. I can always there's always that one out there all by himself. You know, help me help. I'm out here all by myself. No one understands. The Holy Scriptures, they comfort us and they let us know that no temptation that has come upon you is uncommon. But God, everybody say, but God. I love the but gods of Scripture. Amen. The but gods of Scripture, man. You know, if you study grammar, you know that that conjunction, but, it act, when you see the word but there, it means, so everything that was just spoken, forget about that. Because what I'm about to say now totally erases what previously was just said. But God is faithful. Is he faithful? Yes. God is faithful. Who will not suffer you or allow you to be tempted above that, above that you are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape. That you may be able to what? Bear it. The word there is endure it. All right. So a couple of things then. If the Lord, first of all, temptation is not, a, it's not uncommon. It's, you know, everybody goes through it. Second, God is faithful and he will not allow a thing to come upon you that he knows that number one, there is not an escape for it. That it won't take you out. That you will be able to endure it and you will get through it. Amen. Amen. You will get through it because this when I read this verse and I was meditating on it today, it made me think of this idea that, first of all, have you ever heard if you've been ministering to somebody or you're, you, you, you know, you talking to a believer and they think that the thing that they're struggling with is something that they will never be able to get over. Or they say, you know, this thing that's happening to me, it's too, I, I, it's too much. I don't think I can handle it. I don't know why this is happening to me. They make it sound like it's not happening to anybody else. And it's something that they're not going to be able to break through. Um, well, that's not Bible. And this is a comforting verse to shatter those ideas. Because how many know the word of God is a sword? All right. And the Bible says that the word of God is a two-edged sword. And the sword, the two-edged sword, it's sharper. It's so sharp. It's so surgical in its precision. The Bible says it is able to divide what is flesh and what is soulish. All right. It is able to divide emotion from spirit, what is emotional and what is spiritual. The word of God is what helps the Christian believer separate what their feelings are telling them 
and how God feels about the matter. And most of the time, a lot of times, they can be completely different. How you're feeling about yourself is not necessarily how God is feeling about you. Amen. And, you know, my experience is, is that we tend to, we're a lot harder on ourselves than the Lord is. Amen. The Bible says that the Lord, his mercy, it's new once a week. Is his mercy new once a week? No. His mercy is new every morning. Praise God. Every morning it's new. All right. So Corinthians tells us that there is not a temptation that comes upon a man that he has not already made a way of escape. All right. So we will endure it. Now, look at this other verse here. Um, so the question here is, can we be changed? Because some people think, well, I, I don't think I can ever get over this. Can I be changed? Look at verse Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Say amen when you're there. Amen. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That word effeminate there is a word, some translations translate it homosexual. The actual word there, effeminate, it means to dress in masculine, trying to be feminine, or feminine, trying to be masculine. Um, the Bible actually tells us in um, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, it is actually against God's law to cross-dress. It's, it's something that the Lord, you know, he, he, he doesn't like it. He doesn't want his children to do that, okay? Um, it's something that we need to train our children not to do because we're to train up our children in the way that they should go, amen? And how should they go? They should go according to the, the, what the Bible teaches. So that word effeminate there, um, you know, cross-dressing or things like that are, are, are homosexual, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And look at verse 11. And such were some of you. I see my name in that paragraph. I was some of those things. But look at this. As such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Praise God. So I was those things, but now I'm not. Why? Because there was a regeneration that took place. So we have to really stand on this word in this day that we're living in because there's a lot of things that people are trying to say that is normal now. And it's not normal. Okay? And... You know, and we can't change because the scriptures here prove it. Because 
If you were an idolater, if you were an adulterer, if you were a homosexual, the Bible says that and such were some of you, but now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. Now you're justified. All right. So there is a transformation that takes place in the believer when he's born again and he's made a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen. So, you know, the church for many decades now has tried to harp on all these things that society is saying that is right. And we're trying to say it's wrong. It's right. It's wrong. It's right. It's wrong. It's right. It's wrong. I don't really think that is the position that we should take as a church. What we should take is we should preach Christ. And when we preach Christ and him crucified and that he justifies these people types of things for those that believe on him what we then do is within we do give access to the spirit that sanctifies the believer and he regenerates them and he transforms them into who he wants them to be amen, amen. and that is the mission of the church we have to we have to stop getting in these social debates and we have to preach Christ amen, amen. Because he's the only one that can transform a person. When we were, when we were in, in, had our church in, in Bradford, England, we had a couple. We had a lesbian couple that was in our church. And they were in our church as lesbians probably for a good six months maybe. Maybe longer. And just one day, they, we were faithful to Bible study. They were faithful to praise and worship night on Fridays. They were faithful to Sunday services. And all of a sudden, one night, on a Friday night praise and worship service, they just came to the pastor and said, you know what? We think it's time that we should stop living together. I'm going back to live with my mom. And uh, the other girl, she didn't have a place to stay. So the church put her up in a little apartment that they had on site. And, um, and you know, and then about, uh, about a year later, man, one of them met a great man. And they got married. They're married now. They got like five kids or four kids, something like that. So it all what, what causes this? The regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's what causes this. You cannot change somebody by the law. The law does not change. The law will not. You know, you may you some of you in here tonight may even have family members that are dealing with this thing. Telling them what they're doing is wrong is not going to change them. Preaching the cross, that Christ was crucified and that he was raised from the dead. Do you believe on him for the forgiveness of sin? And now when you preach that gospel, what they think is sin, that may be like they may have a totally different concept of what sin is at that moment. All right. They may not even be thinking about their lifestyle. They may be thinking about maybe when they broke into a house one time or, or if they've committed a crime. They, so, but they're still looking to the cross for forgiveness of that. And then once they come in to the cross and through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, boom, you got them, man. That's the hook right there. Once you get them into the, once you get them in Christ, amen. Once you get him in Christ, that's it. It's over. He's theirs. And he just chips away and conforms him into the image of his son little by little. Amen. And that process is called the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. 
Let's look at that real quick. Turn to Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Praise the Lord. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Say amen if you're there. All right. So Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says this. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We just said that. It's not about being a good person. But according to his what? Mercy. Mercy. According to his what? Mercy. Mercy. He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Which he shed on us, what? Abundantly, man. You know, he didn't shed on us, you know, in a small measure. He abundantly shed this washing and this regeneration and this renewing. He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All right? So we have that process there. The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Praise God. Now that washing, when the Bible talks about washing, a lot of times it refers to the word of God. Now we know when Moses, he did the pattern of the tabernacle. He had the laver, which was a big, a big vessel of water. That the priests, when they would come in to have fellowship with God in the tabernacle, they would need to wash themselves with the labor. And in the New Testament, the Bible, the word of God is often referred to as as water. It's the it's the Bible that washes us and the spirit does what it renews us. We have a washing, a regeneration, and a renewing by the Holy Ghost. That's the Spirit and the Word working together, praise the Lord. That's why what we're doing tonight, this is not, you know, a formality. This is so important. You've heard me harp on this ever since I started teaching on these Wednesday nights, how important Bible study is. Because it washes the believer's mind. It, it does something. It transforms them. And, you know, this just doesn't happen overnight. You know, I love revival services. I'm a drinker. I love the Holy Ghost. I love to party in the Holy Ghost. I love to get drunk. I love to fall down. I love revival services where the anointing is so strong you can't hardly stand up. Okay. And what you get in those services is totally different than what you get on a consistent Day, weekly Bible study. You cannot feel the effects of this word overnight. You feel the effects of this word over months, years. You see the impact that it has on you. Amen. Amen. You might have heard that illustration that I've talked about. Um, you know, the Chinese bamboo. Has anybody ever heard of that story about the Chinese bamboo tree? You plant a Chinese bamboo seed into the ground and for four years, it doesn't even break the soil. But in the fifth year, that Chinese bamboo grows 90 feet in one year. 90 feet. Because for four years, what was it doing? It was getting rooted 
It was growing its roots to support that rapid growth that would happen in the fifth year. How, how, can, it, how can it sustain you know, 90 feet in one year? Well, because it's already got the roots already down there to support it. Amen. So to me, that's what Bible study and the washing um, of the word does. So that's the regeneration of it. Okay. So remember that. No temptation is uncommon. We can be changed by the power of regeneration. Amen? Amen. Don't let anybody ever tell you there's no hope or I can't be changed. There is the power to change. Praise God. All right, let's go back to Peter. Um, in verse 13, rejoice that you are partakers of Christ's suffering. You know, when Jesus comes back, we want to be able to say, at least I do, I want to be able to say, Lord, I stood up for you. When times got hard, I didn't cower down. That's, that's my heart's desire. When I see the Lord and he appears, I don't want to feel ashamed. I don't want to think, oh, man, I wish I could have been a little bit. I should have stood up for Jesus a little bit more. When they were making fun of me, I shouldn't have denied his name. Because when his glory shall be revealed, then we will have exceeding joy in that day. Amen. I want the coming of the Lord to be an exceeding joyful day, not a sad day. Amen. It should be a happy time. Happy for the believer, you know, a time of dread for the unbeliever. But for the believer, it, there should be no like, oh, man, why do you have to come now? You know, you hear people sometimes say, oh, I don't want the Lord to come right now. You know, I've got my career I want to finish. I've gone to school. I need to get a job, I want to get married, I want to have kids. All these material things that they think about that they, they, they hope that the Lord keeps, you know, with, withholds his coming and it's like man do you even have any idea what it's going to be like up there <laughs> I mean your your BMW 3 series ain't going to be compared to the chariots of fire that are going on up in heaven praise God I mean you know I mean it's just I mean the, the, the transportation uh, the mode of transportation in glory is going to be something else brother I'm telling you you know so Verse 14, he says, now, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, be happy. And I love how, how Peter words this. For the spirit of glory, the spirit of glory and of God, it rests upon you when you're reproached. That word reproach there. Uh, I like one of the definitions in the Strong's. It says to abrade. It is. To cast in one's teeth. In other words, favors received in the teeth. You ever, you ever had somebody do something for you because they knew you were a good person, but they didn't. They were just like, all right, go ahead and do it, you know. <laughs> Boss, I can't come to work on Sundays. I'm a Christian and I worship the Lord on Sundays. All right, you got to take Sunday off, you know. We're not to feel bad about that. When, when people give us things... Through, it says, 
through favors in clenched teeth, all right, because they don't even know why they're doing it themselves. They're just doing it. They don't want to do it, but, oh, okay, go ahead, I'll just do it then, you know. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't feel like you're putting them off. What you need to do is say, thank you, Lord. It's all, you see, you, you do got control of my boss. See, you know, you do. He's doing it even though he doesn't want to, praise God. He doesn't even feel like doing the things they're doing, but they're doing it. My neighbors don't even feel like being nice to me, but they're just nice to me. I don't know why. Do clenched teeth are even nice to me. That's that word reproach. I thought that was pretty cool. He says, happy, the spirit of glory, it rests upon you. And I love what he says here. For they're speaking evil. They're on, on their part, he's evil spoken of. In other words, they're blaspheming God. But on your part, he's being glorified. You're actually glorifying the Lord. What a, what a privilege. What an honor to be able to be in a position where we actually can give more glory. Where we, where we glorify God. I never realized that we had the ability to glorify God. You know, to, I thought he was already glorified. But the more we receive reproach for loving him, he just gets even more glorified. Amen. So, I mean, he was glorified in our praises and worship, and that was wonderful. But there's a whole other level of, of, bring, of putting more glorification on him when we suffer for him. Now, verse 15 is very critical here in this whole thinking of the suffering Christian. Because it says that we shouldn't suffer as a murderer. And that word suffer, you could think of as being punished. All right. Remember we talked about that a couple chapters back. It's no big deal if you take a punishment that you deserved. But if you get punished for something that you didn't deserve and you take it anyway, that is what gets God's attention. Amen? Yes, amen. So we shouldn't suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matter. So a couple of big things there, murderer, thief, evildoer, and then busybody. Isn't it funny how the Holy Spirit decided to categorize busybody and murderer in the same sentence? That seems a bit, you know, heavy. <laughs> but the Lord, we have to understand, the Lord does not like busybodies. No. He does not like busybodies. I like the definition of busybody. One who takes the supervision of the affairs that pertain to another. Now, when you understand that definition, then you understand why God despises it. Because what you're actually doing there is you're usurping authority when you become a busybody. One who takes the supervision of the affairs pertaining to another. The New Testament teaches the Christian believer to mind your own house, to take care of your own business, and let those who have authority over their business, let them take care of it. Amen. This reminds me of one of the five things that, uh, that, you know, if you've ever been married here and you understand you've gone through pastor's counseling and, you know, one of the things that he teaches is that, you know, you need to be aware that when you get married, that your in-laws 
And your mother and father no longer have jurisdiction in your marriage. They no longer have authority in your marriage. Your marriage is between you and your wife. Amen. Now they could give advice. But how many know you can, the advice can be an overreach, an overstep, amen? And many of you have either been there or you've dealt with people that have been there. That's as far as I'll go with that. So don't be a busybody. It's classified in the same paragraph as a thief or a murderer or a malefactor. But verse 16, if any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God on this behalf. And you know, when I think about it, I just saw Joel's over there. I think about the young people a lot in this scripture. You know, it's very hard for a person in school to really actually be confident and, and, and confess boldly that they're a Christian. Yeah, I struggled with it when I was a kid, um, you know. But if you are a Christian and you are in school, you need to understand that when you tell your friends now, they don't have to be Christians. You don't have to, you know, your friends, you know, we know we, we have many people that we're around that we, that we hang out with, that we're, the, the, we're not necessarily hang out with, but that we're around. They're not believers, okay? But you don't have to be ashamed to at least tell them you're a Christian. Because if you walk as a true Christian, you're not going to be one of these per people. They always try, oh, you're one of them Bible bashers. No, I'm not a Bible basher. I'm a Bible believer. I'm not a Bible basher. I'm a Bible believer. And when you usually, when you believe something, you usually talk about it. Amen. Um, and so... You know, you guys that are in school, you need to understand that when, when you confess that you're a Christian, that when they make fun of you or they try to say, they try to reproach you, they try to say, call you names, or they try to say that, you know, you're this, that, or the other, that you're not to be ashamed and that actually Jesus is got your back and it actually you're, you're, you're glorifying the Lord when you stand up for him. That he's actually receiving glorification there. And what does it mean to be, when we, we use that word term glory all the time, glorification, we hear that. You know, um, glory, to render or esteem honor, to magnify. You know, if the, if the president of the United States was to walk through here, now, some of you may debate this with our current president, but if the president was to walk through here, the common thing, code of honor, would be to stand. Or let's be a better example. If we're in a court of law, when the judge enters the room, what do we do? All rise, right? Why are we rising? Because we're esteeming honor to that, to the magistrate. So it's the same thing. When you take, somebody gives you a, a dig for being a believer and you take it, you don't, don't, because the temptation is to keep your mouth closed so you won't get made fun of. But when you open your mouth and then you do get made fun of, what you've done just then is you've rendered honor to Jesus Christ. You've actually given him a special kind of honor that 
some people can't give him. Because that is a different classification of honor when you are made fun of for being a follower of Jesus Christ. So, verse 17. Now the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. All right? The time has come. That word time there is a, we like this word. It's chronos, or kairos, I mean. There's two, time, there's two words for time. One is chronos and one is kairos. All right, and the word chronos is where we get that word chronology. It's a sequence of events in order, chronos. But this word kairos is a word that describes an opportune moment, a seasonal opportune moment. You know, when you plant at harvest time, you can't just put corn in the ground and come and harvest it anytime you feel like it, right? You can't just put corn in the ground and say, well, you know, I'm going to put that corn in the ground and when it's convenient at my disposal, I'll go and harvest it on my time. No. Your time is chronos. That seed, it's going to come out of the ground and that fruit is going to need to be harvested at a kairos strategic time. Because if you don't pull the fruit off of that, at that Kairos time, what's going to happen? It's going to die. And are you going to be able to go back and eat that fruit? No. You're going to lose the, opportun the opportunity for it to do some good. Amen? You're going to lose the opportunity. And it, this happens so many times in our lives. We miss that Kairos moment where God is saying something. And then we think, okay, I feel that, but God is doing something. It's a Kairos time, but when I have the Kronos, I'll get back to the Kairos, and you can't do it anymore because Kairos is gone. So Kronos and Kairos are two different things. And what he's saying is the Kairos moment is for the judgment to begin at the house of God. We cry out for revival. Our world is in a mess. We turn on the news and we're so irritated with the current events that are going on. And I've complained in abundance. I mean, I am guilty. I have been so irritated for two years. But I'm realizing now, really, I can complain all day. I can't change the world. And this is... this. I don't know why it's taken me 50 years to learn this. Why it's taken me at least 25 to learn it as a born again believer. But I have finally realized that I can't change you. I can only change me. We can only change ourselves. We can only give God access to do a work in me. And I have been so guilty of just always saying, God, change them. Change them. Change them. Why don't they do this, God? Why don't they do this? Why don't they come to Bible study? Why don't they do this? Why do they keep their 
do that? Why do they work there? Why don't, why don't they, why don't, why do they play soccer on Sunday, God? Why this? Why that? Why this? And you know what? I can do that all day long. And that does not advance the kingdom. But what advances the kingdom is, is that when I say and surrender, Lord, do a work in me. Change me. Change my heart. You know, judgment begins at the house of God. If we want to see revival in the land, we really want God to move and, and, and have a, a mighty wave, a great awakening in, in, in the United States, and particularly in the Northwest Territory, particularly this region. I'm tired of Florida getting all the revivals. I'd like to have a revival in the North region. That'd be convenient, wouldn't it? Maybe people just like to fly to those warm places. Maybe that's why God strategically puts the revivals in, in down there. I don't know, but I would really like to see a move of God in our, in our region. But it starts with our house. It starts with our house, but doesn't the Bible call my body a house? We are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. We are the house of God. This body houses the Holy Spirit. So not only so does not only judgment begin with our church, but judgment begins with me. Judgment begins with my house, with me in my house. And it is a kairos moment. It is an opportune time. And if it first begins at us, then what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So another thing then is, is that, you know, the people think that the church is going to escape judgment in the rapture. No, the church is going to escape wrath. The church will escape the wrath of God during the rapture of the church when Jesus Christ, you know, raptures his saints or catches them away. All right. And, but when we're raptured, there's what's called the, the judgment seat of Christ that comes before the great white throne judgment, which if you're at the great white throne judgment, you're in trouble. Because a lot of people think that we're all going to stand before the great white throne judgment. But if you actually read the scriptures, only the wicked are judged at the great white throne. Okay, only the wicked will stand at that judgment. The righteous have already been resurrected and we will stand before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. And when we're judged there, we won't be judged for our sins because we've already turned to Christ for forgiveness of sin. Amen. But what we will be judged is we will be judged for our works, for the things that we did while we were here on earth and we were living for Christ. All right. And some, some will, the Bible says, will be beautiful rubies and precious gemstones. And then some will be hay and stubble. And the hay and what God will do is, or the Lord, he will, he will judge those works with fire. And how many know that precious stones will, they will not be consumed by the fire. But if your works are hay and stubble, then they're going to be consumed by the fire and there, there'll be nothing there. But you will be saved, the Bible says. 
So we bring our works to the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. The fire falls. The, everything that remains is a reward. Everything that is up in smoke, it's up in smoke. But you just go on. You turn to the guy that got precious gems. You're like, good job, man. I thought I was going to get that, but I see you were a little bit better. And what the motive, what he's talking about there, he's actually talking about, it's not the quality of what you did. Okay? You know, somebody can start an incredible ministry and have millions of subscribers to their ministry be on TV, having a phenomenal impact, so they think, on the globe. But if you study out Corinthians... The Lord, that fire, what is the fire? What actually is going to determine the value of our works? It's not what we did, but it's why we did it. The motive is going to be love. If you did it for him, if you did it for you, if you did it for your identity, if you did it to make your name great, that's hay and stubble. And that could, be, that could be a huge global ministry. But if that global ministry was all done in the name of their name, then that's going to be a giant haystack. Hey, man, that's going to be a good bonfire. <laughs> that's going to be a good bonfire. But the little old lady that had the prayer ministry, and she did it for the Lord when no one was looking. And many people came to salvation because of her intercession. She'll be walking out of there with bags of gold. Amen. Because she did it. The, the motive was the right motive. Amen. So that's the other thing. Because judgment will begin at the house of God. The church will be judged first. And then after that, the wicked will be judged. Um, and if the righteous scarcely be saved. In other words, you know, we all know being not, how many know that being a Christian is not the majority? Amen. Yes. What's Jesus teach us? Broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. Narrow, it's a narrow way. It's narrow, man. I mean, if this aisle here was the path of humanity and they were going down this aisle, you know, salvation's that green line. Salvation's that green line. And everybody's going that way, and the church, we're going this way, amen? amen. I love that. Anybody ever seen that graphic of the, uh, of the school of fish? Yeah. And they're, they're all, they look like uh, some ugly fish. I mean, some real, real under the water, ugly fish. <laughs> and they're all going that way. And then there's this little, the ichthus, you know, the little symbol, the Christian fish. And it's going the opposite way, man. I love that. That's a great look. That's a great t-shirt or bump, bumper sticker, whatever. So, all right. Now, now, if the righteous scarcely be saved, then where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him and well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Is he faithful? Yes. I said, is he faithful? Yes. If he is faithful... Then we commit to him the keeping of our souls because we know he's got it. God's got it. Amen. There's a Christian rap song. God's got it. God's got it, man. God's got it. And if God's got it, 
God can keep it. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Pastor.